Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of Future Food Weekly. I'm your co-host Sonali Figueres from Green Queen and joining me as always is Steve Molino of Clear Current Capital. Hey Steve. Hey Sonali, how you doing? Yeah, I'm recovering from all the travel. It's definitely, uh, it's good to be home, but um, yeah, it's been- Yeah, I don't, I don't know how you do it. You like, like travel for me is mostly like, oh, I, I go to like maybe California or, or, or something like that. Cause I'm, I'm in the New York area. You're, you're literally going all over the world. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's really funny is I realized that I was seeing people from a, a company so like, for example, the Melly Bio guys, I saw one co-founder in California and then the other co-founder in Singapore. And that happened for a few companies. So it was kind of, it was kind of funny, like this little food, food tech world where it's all over the world. I mean, I don't want to think about how bad that is in terms of the flight emissions, um, which is why, you know, I, I really, I really do try to be very choosy with where, when I travel, because it's, um, you know, one has to be a little bit cognizant of one's travel footprint when one is in the green space. Um, Definitely. But those companies have the benefit of having co-founders. So one could do one place, the other can go elsewhere. There's only one Sonali. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> yes. Um, but still, sometimes just what you get from that in-person um, meet up with 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 the industry and ecosystem insiders and stakeholders is is really crucial and um, you know so many conversations especially for for the food tech space in Singapore during you know the Agri Food Week so much was happening um, last time I spoke to you, we were I was in the middle of that week um, and then now you know I'm back in Hong Kong after after that week. You, I go, you got to give it to Singapore. They really put on an incredible uh, week of events and so many people from all over the world are there. So many funds are there. There were tons of demo days from accelerators, Ag Funder, Grow Impact, Innovate 360, just so many pitch events, um, you know, so many opportunities for either corporates or, or funds to provide a prize for startups. So it really is, they, they've created this kind of locus of attention and activity around agri-food. It's broader than just food tech. It really is also ag tech as well. It's essentially the whole food system. And, you know, ever since they, they created this 30 by 2030 plan where they would try and grow 30% of their food by 2030 domestically, um, they've really positioned themselves as, as a leader in, you know, you know, highlighting innovation and supporting and promoting innovation to, you know, to really uh, come up with solutions to basically address all the issues that are, you know, uh, that are affecting our global food system, but especially affecting countries in Asia where, you know, mm -hmm. we have less land and less water and a booming population. So, it's 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 really interesting just reflecting back comparing to the conversations i heard at verge in california about food systems which were also quite holistic and however not so much on food tech a lot of the conversation at verge around food systems and and climate was around policy change behavioral change 
you know, so fixing the soil, because of course the U.S. has so much farmland. So soil mm -hmm. is a much bigger topic where a country like Singapore has barely any farmland. So we're not, they're not thinking about soil the same way, you know? Um, and just so much more around regenerative agriculture, not just to do with meat, but just, just overall, just, just a regenerative approach, a circular approach to growing food. And there was a lot more about food waste from the farm level. Um, so, so just very different focus, topic focuses. Um, I would say that innovation for food in the U.S., feels like it's in a different category than the folks that are working on things like food policy and making agriculture better and more diverse and more equitable and safer and, and less synthetic. Whereas in Asia, it feels like innovation is not at all in any way a dirty word. It's always a positive word. It's always like, well, of course we need innovation to help us figure out all the issues in the food system. So it's just really different approach to innovation and to mm. how it's seen. That's, that's really, really interesting. And it, it makes sense, right? Like, like, like it does make sense. You already mentioned how like the differences in like the agricultural production or food production in these different regions, how they vary. Um, and, and I think, I think it's good that in the U S there's still, there's still a, a movement to try to cr create innovation, but to your point, it, it innovation here means different things to different people. There's the, there's the people <clears throat> like, like us and investors and, and startups that are trying to change what we eat and how we produce it. And then there's, I'd say the bulk, right? The, the true agriculture community here, which is massive, absolutely massive. And their innovation for them is making slight efficiency, efficient efficiency changes for their supply chain or, or changing how much they utilize fertilizers or pesticides in a, in a certain way, which again, makes sense. It does make sense, but it, that's a very interesting point that you bring up. Yes. Um, and, and the big difference also, if we look at farms as in the U S farmers are, it's, it's a much more organized farm system with a lot bigger processors, traders, you know, grain houses. Whereas in Asia, what you have, okay, not in Singapore, but the rest of Asia is you have this huge amount of small holder farms that are actually not adopting much technology. And so for example, the report I referred to last week that was um, done by Rabobank and Tomasic and Terrascope and PwC, the big message that they had was actually with very small investments in available technology for smallholder farms, emissions can, can really come down a lot. I think their number was 12%. And this is for not crazy deep tech stuff. This is for stuff that's already there. Whereas for example, the farming system in the US is so efficient already, you wouldn't be able to get the same gains in emissions reduction if you were to apply some of these technologies because these technologies are already there on the farms. And it's mm. a lot less of a small holder farm system. So it's just, once again, so important. This is where it's so important to travel. It's so important to have a global perspective. It's so important, you know, to understand the differences culturally, politically, like spatially, just environmentally, like what is the land? 
What kind of farming is it? You know, what's the weather situation? It's just quite different. So it's just not Absolutely. challenges and you can't apply one solution or one framework across the entire world. Absolutely. No, such, such good points that you're bringing up and, and I fully agree. So you want to want to dive in to the big story? <laughs> yes, the big story is a little bit of a sexy celebrity story. We got a little bit of exclusive. I got the chance to meet a wonderful gentleman called Jay Fairs, who runs the wellness agency. And um, he shared this story with us about the wonderful vegan chef, Matthew Kenny, who I had the pleasure of interviewing a few years ago in Hong Kong. Um, and whose restaurants I have been to everywhere, including in New York, where you live. I love his double zero vegan pizza restaurant there. He's obviously mm -hmm. this very, this towering figure in vegan chef world. Um, he has an empire now that spans multiple continents. He's in Australia. He's in UAE. He's in the UAE. He's in, um, he's in the US. He's, he's, he's in various parts of, of Europe, but now he wants to go to China. And so he's inked the steel to do these. So he has this thing in Rhode Island, in, in Providence, Rhode Island called Plant City, which is basically like a giant vegan food hall that's done really well. He, he does that with a partner called Kim Anderson and uh, she's an investor partner with him. And they are gonna bring that concept to multiple cities in China. And it sounds like they have some big, big Chinese food and other business partners that are that are supporting the effort. Um, and it's just, it's really interesting um, because to be honest, the plant-based food industry in China has been slower than most of us would like having chronicled the space for the last few years. There are fewer plant-based meat brands than one would have thought. Um, it just hasn't, you know, beyond meat entered the market. They've sort of pulled back a lot. Oatly, was doing really well, now is pulling back a lot. Results are not where they want it to be. Um, Plant-based meat specifically has, has struggled. Um, certain things like plant-based milk and plant-based yogurt and plant-based snacks and kind of functional foods like, like protein snacks or things like that have done well. So the health play is working, but just the wider kind of adoption of a plant-based diet has not necessarily I would say taken off. Um, uh, so it's interesting to see this um, and to see that, you know, Chinese business partners are feeling optimistic about um, the idea of a plant-based food hall with entirely plant-based concepts. And so I think the idea would be to have some of Matthew Kenny's concepts from other parts in the world, like potentially a double zero pizza and things like that. But some of the concepts would also be local and adapted to Asian and Chinese cuisines and, and have concepts that are, you know, in line with, with those cuisines. Yeah, no, this is, a, this is a really, really cool one. And, and it's funny, like with Plant City, like I, I definitely know Plant City in, in the U.S. It's in Rhode Island, as you mentioned. And, and I do know people that like, they love it so much that if they're ever in or slightly around the region of where Plant City is, they'll like go out of their way to, to drive there. It just seems like kind of like a, a dream for someone who wants to eat healthy plant-based food because you just go there and there's just so many options and they're all very well thought out. Um, and, and I thought that this was really interesting um, because when I, when I see Matthew Kenny or I hear his name, 
my head goes to a specific type of plant-based eating. So like you were mentioning how in China, um, like Beyond has, has entered the market and maybe is pulling back and a lot of the, the alt meat brands aren't necessarily flourishing as much as, as we would like there. Um, but when I think of Matthew Kennedy, I don't think alt meat. I think of whole food plant-based. Like he, it's, it's kind of wild how long he's been in this space and been a leader in this space for whole food, plant-based diets and trying to show that you can have meals um, and dishes with, with truly just whole, whole food plant plants that t don't, don't leave you feeling like you want more or feeling like you need an animal product. And obviously that's, that's the, that's like the Holy grail right there, right? Like you don't need to engineer something completely new, but he's, he's, known for this that's what why he is a celebrity right and i think he has his own his own culinary school that teaches this and um yeah, it's pretty he's, big he's and very associated oh. with raw veganism um yeah raw, yeah very, raw vegan is yeah, yeah he's associated also with a very famous restaurant in new york called pure food and wine um recently mm -hmm. made even more notorious thanks to the netflix show bad vegan about his former romantic and business partner sarma Melgal. Melgailis, but um, he then created Plant Food and Wine in LA and kind of restarted his empire. But what's interesting about him is that while he has pioneered raw vegan food and then moved into whole food plant-based foods, he now has um, a bunch of concepts that do include plant-based meats and things like that. Mm. So he no, that's interesting. has evolved and he has looked beyond and, and to me, he seems like someone who is, you know, very, very innovative and very creative and an incredible chef, but is also willing to meet people where they are. Um, mm -hmm. And I believe he, one of his restaurants, I think it's in Florida, he, he actually transformed a former site of a fast food restaurant into his plant-based casual food concept that includes burgers and things like that, that does use you know, plant-based meat alternatives and things like that. So no, that's, that's, that's super interesting. And, and I think, and I think I'm so curious to see how this span, like this pans out in China, just because it seems like they're trying to do it at not just like one restaurant in China. Like this is really going to be like multiple plant city type food halls. Right. Um, and each of those will have over more than 10, um, 10 restaurants within them. And, and, I'm curious to see how much he caters to the the local cuisine. I, I like he is truly a world renowned chef, and and I have no doubt that he can create dishes that are perfect for that that local cuisine. Um, and and I'm also curious to see like how it how it hits on things like pricing. And the reason I think of pricing is because I, I spoke to him once um, a, a number of months back. I was looking at a company that he was he was kind of involved with, and a lot of it was surrounded by the concept of affordable plant-based food, which is such a big deal. Like that should be like the, the, one of the main focuses. Right. Um, but that was a key thing for him. So, uh, I mean, this is really interesting. I can't wait to see how this, this plays out. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, he is someone who evolves and who is constantly kind of doing things, trying things out and who, who wants to meet the consumer where they are. You know, he's, he's someone who started out in raw vegan and is now doing all kinds of things. So that shows you that he, he, he can move with the times. And I think that's, that's the kind of long staying business power, business acumen. That's the kind of business acumen you need to be a long staying business leader. Absolutely. He is. Um, 
very cool. But I mean, so beyond what's beyond next? that, I mean, that's a, yeah. What's what, what else did you wanna you wanna hit on this week? I I think the story that really caught my eye this week is about the French startup that raised three million euros for cell cultured breast milk. They're called Numi. Um, they were called, I think, formerly called Moo Milk. But anyhow, two women. Uh, it's interesting. You, you know, a, a lot of times you don't see a lot of women founders in food tech as much as you would like. But I have to say, funnily enough, all the or I think 90% of the breast milk startups are run by women, go figure. Um, this is a really interesting space because you don't have to, you know, you don't have to be a woman or have kids to know that the infant formula market is mega and that solving this issue of helping new mothers and new parents really feed their child, um, whether it's making breastfeeding easier or, or giving them the right formula or, or making better formula or what these companies are trying to do, which is like recreating human breast milk using cellular agriculture. I mean, this is a huge market. I mean, this is, you know, if, if, you, can, if you can master this, if you can figure out a way to, to give women, you know, bio-identical or molecularly identical breast milk, um, I mean, that's the holy grail, right? Because it's not easy being a new mom and it's not easy breastfeeding. And, oh, 10% of women who want to breastfeed can't even breastfeed, not to mention, you know, kids that are in the NICU and, and, and so their moms can't breastfeed them or, or if a mom gets sick or if God forbid if a mom is not available, um, not to mention dads who want to help, you know, uh, help out at night but, or, or during the day and can't. So this is a huge, huge area. And I still remember the first time I heard about a cell-based breast milk company, it was Turtle Tree from Singapore who has since pivoted out of that space and is now doing precision fermentation lactoferrin. So they're no longer there. Then you've got Helena out of New York, which is also doing precision fermentation lactoferrin. And then you've just got a really small handful of companies. You've got Israeli company Wilk, you've got US North Carolina based Biomilk, and then you've got Australian company Me And. And th these are the three really main companies that are still doing cell-based breast milk. And let's, let's be clear, that's a very small amount. And there hasn't been that much that has progressed in this space. You know, Biomilk had a big round, Wilk had a big round. Um, Meand in Australia had a 2.5 million US round. And then you've got this news. So I, I'm just, I'm fascinated by this space. I think it's an underserved space. I think if these founders can get it right, I mean, the sky's the limit here. Um, it, you know, we've seen what has happened with infant formula and the crises that happened last year because one of the manufacturers of, of infant formula like couldn't meet the demand um, because something went wrong at one of in one of their supply chains, um, and that caused like a huge panic because so many people rely on formula. You know, uh, so yeah, I, this story just interests me. Yeah, I, I think it's a it's a great one to bring up, and and you brought up a lot of the, the good companies that that are out there. But again, to your point, there's not many, and I've spoken with almost all of them. I actually haven't spoken with with with, with Numi, and um, it's I think one thing to call out is like for for people that don't maybe know the differences of of their approach versus like a precision fermentation approach. Precision fermentation is great, right? It can create a very specific target protein or enzyme through through the that technology. But but breast milk is not just one protein or, or, or one one micronutrient. It is 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 a very complex 
um, food offering for, for infants. So the, the cultivated or cultured approach in theory is, is trying to create the real thing, taking mammary cells, allowing them to go through their natural production process and create everything that's within breast milk. And, and that, that is to your point, the, the Holy grail, it's much much more expensive and that's what i've seen like when i've looked at companies myself from an investment standpoint the underlying unit economics are much more um they're much more difficult to to make commercial feasibility a possibility but if you can do it then again it's not just a single protein and that could be that could be amazing and then i think you really hit on the thing that i was going to bring up on this which is supply chain resiliency I can tell you firsthand when that shortage was happening for for infant formula in the U.S. It was, maybe it was global, but in the U.S. I can tell you there was there were no there was no formula on the shelves, and and we we had someone that we knew that needed formula, and we were if we saw it we bought it and we, to to give to them because we knew that they couldn't find it, and if if you can't find that and you have an infant that is living off of formula which is six months and under that's what they eat if they can't be breastfed right like you're what do you do you, like that's that's a very big issue so there were ngos that were telling moms to give like you know milk uh, like water with sugar to your infant like to make your formula last longer you know because there was so little formula i mean it, right it, and that's wild that's wild like that's that should never be the case right and and again this is not a world where we say, well, shouldn't people just breastfeed? People, women can't always breastfeed. It's sometimes not in their, in their choice. It's, it's just not a possibility. And, yeah. and we, and we're we not need more resiliency. To, exactly. We need more resilience. And we're not here to, 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 to make any judgments on whether women want to breastfeed or not. I certainly know women no. didn't want to. I know women who did want to. I did want to, um, but I actually wasn't looking forward to it. And then, and then it took me two months. And then, and then it's something that I that I became very attached to. But I can tell you, for example, with me that you know at about eight months. So I never had a, a big supply of breast milk. I only had exactly what the baby needed. At, at the time he ate. So I was never able to do things like pump and, and have frozen supply. And at eight mm-hmm. months, the baby had, you know, started weaning my son and he was eating so much that my milk just reduced. And so I was only able to make it to eight months. And really after six months, I wasn't full time anymore. And you're not able to give a child regular milk, whether it's an oat milk or a dairy milk, until they're one years old, you need to provide this like fortified kind of formula that's either breast milk or a formula. So I ended up having to supplement and I was unable to find a vegan formula at that time in the world. Um, The Mm -hmm. only vegan formula that really existed that was non-soy based was a rice formula that was made in a French factory that basically had sold out early in the year. And so I ended up having to go with goat, even though I was raising my child vegan. So, you know, I, two, two things I I will say here. One, if men were the ones breastfeeding, governments would be funding this. Like it is, it is. That's such an interesting idea. That's that's probably that's probably true. Yeah, I, I or everyone. I mean, I'm gonna piss off people with survive. my like pro feminist <laughs> stance here, but 
if this were something that men were facing and men were in charge of the world as they are now, let's face it, this would be government funded work. And the fact that it isn't is just shocking. And two, um, we don't have time to go into it, but the infant formula world is fascinating, super corrupt, really, really um, opaque and lacking in transparency. And the policies around formula and, and policy around make getting women to use formula versus breastfeed and what advice they're given at hospitals and what formula they're given at hospitals when they're when when babies are born is a whole world unto itself um it is and i've i've tried to dig into this on the investment i've looked at plant-based formula companies precision fermentation cultivated and it's and it's because it's just such a crazy world that it, that currently exists that we're trying to make better um, I didn't know anything about the corrupt side, so I'm super intrigued. And I know we don't have time to talk about it now, but we should talk about that. That sounds so interesting. We really should. <laughs> we, we really should. There's a lot to talk about there. That's that's an that's something we could. But it, it it all comes down to the fact that like, why is it there more going on in this space? Why aren't there more grants? Why aren't there more founders? you know, this is a problem that literally every single human being faces is like what they're going to eat for the first six to 12 months of their life. Like this is nobody's mm -hmm. exempt from this, no matter where they live, no matter who they're born to. So just really, really, uh, re just really, really important topic. Um, so what else, what else is on your mind from the, yeah. Yeah. The thing that I, I wanted to bring up was, um, it's, it's, it's different, but there's a lot of similarities. So it's, it was the piece that, that you and your team did on, on the every company. So the precision fermentation egg uh, producer, and mm -hmm. they're doing, they're collaborating with uh, Colombia's largest CPG food company. Um, and, 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 and I just thought this was really interesting for a couple of reasons. One is we, we live in this, with this food tech world where we say there's precision fermentation, this or cultivated that, and there's a lot of ingredients. We don't have many, many proof points that there's there's absolutely demand once these 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 proteins or ingredients are created, right? Like we we hope there will be. It should be there from an environmental sustainability standpoint, et cetera. Um, but we don't have a lot of proof points. And and this this development is kind of proving that uh, at least for the every company, their product has demand at a large scale from a, a major major retailer to use as an ingredient in the background. Um, and that's that's a really good, interesting thing. And then the second point is, I really do think that one of the easiest ways to push the food system forward is by not having to create behavior change. And by the every company working with Grupo Nutresa in Colombia, and this is going to be using this egg ingredient, which is bioidentical to, to eggs, using this uh, ingredient uh, within products in retail individual consumers don't have to make the decision around it they don't have to know that it's in there it'll be labeled i'm sure it'll be called out but um it doesn't say hey you currently eat eggs now use this other egg it's just saying just buy buy food products and we're switching out uh conventional eggs for this so i think that that's very interesting um and again i think this is just a, a, an exciting thing because grupo nutresa is is big. They're like what three billion dollars of of revenue annually. Like this is not some small partnership. So, I just thought it was interesting, and I was even going to bring up how 
like supply chain is, is just more resilient with precision fermentation. Um, but we kind of just hit on that with, with cultivated breast milk, right? With, with Numi where that's, that's a big benefit. So I don't need to go into it too much there, but um, really, really cool partnership to see. Absolutely. And to, to just build on that, just about the every company, um, I do want to say the every company seems like they have from the get-go prioritized these kind of big partnership collaborations with large industry players. So I think it was with the beer company, ABM Bev for the brewing capacity um, for their fermentation. And then they had, they had an announcement with Bimba, the largest kind of baked goods player in Latin America, I think um, around, around using their, their egg proteins for baked goods. So they, they, this is how they seem to look at it strategically, which I, I so agree with you. I love your point about how we don't have a lot of proof points and we desperately need them. So yeah, go team every, let's see. Yeah, um, let's see what happens. Before we end on a positive, I think we do need to address the, <laughs> the beyond meat elephant in the room. No, just kidding. Uh, beyond uh, <laughs> results, like preliminary Q3 results came out and, you know, unfortunately, they weren't very good. I think 25% down from forecast, um, especially because last time uh, Ethan Brown, the CEO, addressed shareholder uh, stakeholders and, and shareholders um, at his earnings call, he actually was actually pretty optimistic about the third quarter. Um, so not great. They've also announced more layoffs. I actually feel like the layoffs are not a big negative. I think it's good to see fiscal responsibility and discipline from a lot of, you know, the companies in, in the space that need to kind of just get things in check. But it, it does seem like sales are just not not getting there. Yeah. And and I feel like there's two ways to look at this one um, in general when it comes to, to beyond and all the, the, the issues that they've had with with growth over the past call it two years at this point it's you can look at like the issues that are company specific and then industry specific so company specific i i agree with you it's good to see fiscal responsibility i mean it should always be that way but i mean they had higher expectations around growth and demand so they were setting themselves up for that and when that didn't pan out now they're they're having to reevaluate and and maybe change prices and 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 maybe remove some products that aren't really having the velocity that they need um but but they're they're struggling internally and they have to fix that right i think one of the bigger things to to think about for the industry and this could be for for consumers it could be for for startups that are out there or people who are thinking about creating a startup is um beyond is is the the uh one of the best examples out there of the original thesis in this space which is create use plants create bio not bioidentical create use plants and create things that taste the same or try to taste the same and have the same texture as some type of animal product. And as opposed to just taking like a Matthew Kenny approach, right? Like a, a, a whole food plant-based approach. And there's clearly a market, right? There's billions of dollars in sales in this space, but that market is really stalled. And in some, in some areas of the world, especially the U S it might be decreasing in certain categories, like in retail. So for companies out there, and for companies that might be, exist soon, you really have to think like, is this approach going to be something that is viable for you? Is it going to move the needle from, from an impact standpoint, whether that's health, sustainability, animal welfare, 
or is there something else that could be potentially more impactful? And, and there's nothing wrong with saying, no, I still think that that's the way to go forward, but you just have to kind of think about like, well, if it's if beyond is struggling, how are you going to overcome those challenges? So I, I, that's what comes to mind for me really more so the overall, um, overall issues for the, for the space that this kind of signals. Absolutely. Um, and so he, the official earnings call is going to be, I think, later this week. So let's hear what he has to say when he digs into why. Yeah, it's going to be uh, important. Uh, it's, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, pretty unfairly Beyond Meat is, as I always say, the avatar, the avatar for the industry. Um, but, you know, important for us to stay on top of the news because people do follow the stock and the company as that avatar, especially in the U.S. So. Let's see. Um, let's let's end on a positive as we always do. Uh, do you have one in mind? I do, I do. So within the newsletter, there's the the, the post on the Chartwell's Higher Education, uh, which is a catering company that works with universities. They they mentioned that there's been an increase in students that are looking for climate friendly meals in in the U.S. Um, and the way that they know this is because they did a partnership with the carbon labeling company how good and what they found is that um there's there's basically evidence of of students saying that they would rather either with their dollar or verbally they are they are saying they would rather eat things that are better for the planet and it's much easier to do that when they know which products on the menu are actually better for the planet versus not and i just feel like this is such a positive in a couple for a couple of reasons one is just we've been talking Kind of obsessively over past past podcasts of of how how much um, opportunity we see with labeling, right? And whether that's around carbon labeling or health labeling, and it just it just helps people know the information that they want to know more quickly without having to become an expert. And I just think it's it can help with the behavior change aspect. And this kind of is another proof point of that working on the environmental side. And then the the second thing that I think is really exciting is just i'm kind of um a true believer that they're that long term our food system will be in better hands because i do think that the younger generations are starting to think about how they eat and how that impacts the environment their health and animals at an early age versus finding out later in life and then having to change everything that they've ever done for their whole lives so um seeing that seeing something like this, it's just, again, another proof point of generational change in a positive way that the younger generations, they want to do better and they will if they know what's actually better for the environment. So I just thought this was great. I thought it was really, really cool. I mean, I don't have much to add other than that. I'm so excited about the potential for change at public eating spaces and these companies like Chartwells and Sodexo and Compass were just using their power for good not necessarily because they want to, but because it actually also has bearing on their scope three emissions, which I keep bringing up. Um, <laughs> but it is incredible how much you can get people to change um, by making it easy to eat delicious plant-based food and, and, and what an impact that can have on emissions and on just habits. And yes, students are such an area of opportunity and all the data shows that, uh, younger people are more concerned about the planet and about the climate crisis and about eating less meat and less dairy 
and in cultures where young people have influence over older people, like in Germany, that is affecting the choices of what older generations are eating for the better. So this is just such a good thing. Yeah, and, and, and also just to call this out, like keeping my, holding myself accountable, like this, this is a great example of how I'm just so naturally um, wrong with my gut instinct. So I think like in a prior one, I said, well, let's have labels that are more nuanced and they show more detail and you can kind of dig into things a little bit. And the flip side of that is like, well, like people can't really get that detailed. And it's funny because, <laughs> excuse me, it's funny because if you, if you look at what they did in this instance to show that something is climate friendly, they literally just put a picture of the earth next to a, 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 a menu item it I didn't say it. anything else which is like how much Nudge. more basic can you get right and it's like there's no complexity that's there the reality is they they only put that earth there if after looking at things from eight impact metrics around greenhouse gas emissions processing water soil health etc um, if it passes all that then they put the earth there but for the students they don't actually want to dig into the details they, they want to make the change and just putting a little little picture of the earth next to it does a, does a, does the job. So I'm just, it seems like I'm wrong, which is great. That's a good learning. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so many more studies coming out about all of this and we'll dive in next week, but yes, so many good things and, and just, just hope and, and, and progress that we really need. Absolutely. Absolutely. I like ending on a positive note. It's good for us. <laughs> Indeed. All right. Well, Steve, see you next week for another. I mean, it's just unbelievable how much news there is every week. It never fails to just surprise me. Um, not to mention that we had to create an entirely new column of quick bites just for all the other news <laughs> that can't fit into individual articles. It's just, it's it, there's so much going on in this space. And what is more important than transforming our food system? I don't know. I don't think there's anything. So, I mean, that's why we do what we do, right? That's, that's why we're here. Um, see you next week, everyone. And remember to follow and subscribe to our podcast from wherever you get your favorite shows. See you next week. <laughs>